Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Starting a Counseling Podcast. I'm Kelly Higdon, and today I'm joined by Kate Walker from Kate Walker Training, and we're going to explore her journey through starting a private practice and moving into training and education. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you are in Texas. I am. And if you hear my dogs barking, I'm also in the country (laughs) in Texas. Oh, I love it. And that's something we kind of share in common is our love for um, that state. And you do a lot. I mean, you're involved in a lot of different things, but I want to talk about how you even got here. So can you share a little bit about your journey into starting into this field and, and why? Absolutely. So I actually graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a music degree in 1989 and did that for like 14 years. I'm a music teacher, orchestra teacher, bass player, freelance, did did all the things. And in the meantime, also had a family. So I guess in about two, no, 1998, I thought, okay, I need to do something more. Mm-hmm. And my story that, that brought me into this, uh, you know, just having a lot of complicated situations where a therapist helped me and mm-hmm. knowing that as a teacher, I was touching students, but I wasn't really helping them. I wasn't really getting to know them. So started the counseling program, graduated in 2000 or yeah, 2000, couldn't really make the leap. So I was the counseling orchestra teacher. uh, (laughs) Yeah, at a school. school. And so what do we do when we don't know what to do with our career? We go back to school. So I started a PhD program in 04 while I was trying to start a private practice in a little room over what became a bar. So I don't know if that's irony or not, right? So <laughs> counseling below, counseling above. And <laughs> just different kinds. It was exactly, exactly. So in 04, I started the, the PhD program. And uh, that was a it was tough because starting the PhD program, I couldn't do both, right? Doing the private practice full-time, doing a PhD program full-time, three kiddos. And my husband gets deployed to Iraq, Iraq, and then I get breast cancer. So pulled back, stayed in school, finished the PhD program in 07. Cancer's great. Had some reconstruction, cancer-free since then, no problems. Uh, 07 restarted it, rebranded, called the practice Achieve Balance. It was all about the family which I'm showing my age because that reminded me of the sitcom from back in the 70s. (laughs) Achieve Balance was awesome. Uh, My mentor for my PhD program uh, basically took me under her wing. We started this practice, the two of us, and it grew. It was in a wonderful demographic. We were able to stay cash, uh, no insurance. I would say I did a little dipped my toe into insurance in 2010. Mm got right back out, stayed cash. And then in, uh, at the same time, she was sharing material with me to start a training program, Mm. the 40 hour training to become a supervisor in Texas. There's a 40 hour course, every LPC and LMFT needs to take if they Mm -hmm. want to be a supervisor. In 2015, uh, Dr. Detrude retired. I took the course over 
and then in 2019 adapted the course to completely online when the rules changed and allowed that. Mm. So still maintaining the private practice, doing the training, um, threw in a little nonprofit in there called Anne's Place for about five years. I, I closed just threw that it in, huh? Okay. Just threw it in. Yeah. We'll come um, back to that. I knew my limits. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, now my, my three kids are out of the house. So uh, everything I do is virtual and I'm in Lampasas, Texas. Mm-hmm. My counseling practice is virtual. My training is virtual. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. I, I really like where life has taken me right now. I go to Lampasas every year. No, you don't. Yes, I do. do I do. Do you go to Spring Hill? No, my family, um, my in-laws have land in land passes. So, oh my gosh, we are totally (laughs) going to meet up at the Rolling Pin Bakery and we're going to have coffee. That sounds good. While they go do whatever they do in the woods, I will (laughs) go have coffee. Um, Why private practice though? Because there's some, especially being an educator, some people go straight into teaching. Um, Why did you want to do private practice? I think I always knew I wanted to have my own business, right? Even as a teenager, I taught private lessons in the the freelancing world where you're, you know, musician and you just kind of get hired and you do the gig and you go home. And then in the school, I, I liked teaching, but I did not like authority. And so I, I realized, wait, this sucks. I'm working my butt off and I'm never going to make more than this. And I wasn't used to that because being an entrepreneur, you know, you work hard and you can make as much money as you want to make. It wasn't about the money. It was about my time is valuable. So after teaching, I I knew that I wanted private practice. In fact, that's why I went into counseling. I never thought I would go into academia. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had opportunities to go into a tenure track position or a clinical position. um, And I I usually turn them down because um, I I like the flexibility. I love adjunct. I, I love teaching at different universities, especially after COVID. We're able to do a lot of virtual so um, private practice really allows me to do the things that I love and have a life. Hmm. Now, you mentioned that you went into practice with another person. This is a little bit more uncommon. Can you talk about what that, why that decision and what, it, what the structure was? Well, the, the originally my little practice above the bar, that was mm-hmm. just me. And I was mm-hmm. just happy if I broke even, if I was able to pay my rent, it was like, yay, I knew I was learning the ropes. But when, um, when Dr. Detrude invited me to do private practice, it was, it, we had some good boundaries. She was semi-retired. And so she said she just wanted the office on Wednesday. And so we didn't have a formal agreement, mm. but it was sort of like, we're going to split the rent. Kate, you get Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I get Wednesday. So we never really even crossed paths. So it's not Um, like you own the business together. You shared mm -hmm. space together. No. And I tried the big practice thing. I I had like seven offices and, you know, people coming and going. And I, and I, you look at your bottom line, you look at your P and L and you're like, wait a minute, I'm making exactly the same as I would have cleared if I was working by myself, right? Right. So when that day hits you and you realize bigger is not always better, 
right. it's like, you know, that was a aha moment for me. Yeah. I think that's something that we talk a lot about in terms of growth of either way you decide to grow, it's going to be work, right? But you want it right. to be worth your work in terms of energy and passion, and also in terms of making sense financially. I think there is a way to grow the practice and be profitable, but you have to be super intentional about it and you have to run the numbers and you have to find other ways to provide benefits to your employees or whatever your situation is. And so, yeah, sometimes I never grew to group practice. And I think sometimes people think it's funny. I work with a lot of group practices. I used to run a really large clinic in the government, in the county. And um, I knew after that, I was like, mm, I'm not going to do this in my own business. I like simplicity, minimalism in my practice. Um, well, something you said struck me. You and I chatted before when when I invited you to talk to my mm -hmm. group, um, and you said sometimes we carry that that agency mentality, like mm -hmm. busy, 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 better, better, better. I've got to be, you know, forty clients a week. And I think that that start I started with that, and mm -hmm. my big practice grew quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a relief. You you were very validating when mm -hmm. you were like, oh, no, we don't have to do that. And no. I, I found that out the hard way. Yeah. So I think it's cool that, that your message is you don't have to do that. <laughs> right. Better. Right. How, you know, and so do you, you're still in practice mm -hmm. and you are also doing this training and supervision. What, mm -hmm. what makes you passionate about supervision and like raising up clinical supervisors? Because Clinical supervision is, to me, I've paid for it, even licensed. I continue to get supervision because I found it just so beneficial um, for my growth as a clinician um, and, yeah, the work that I was doing. I think it, it made me better and more effective in my work. How have you, it sounds like you've brought your education, like that part of you, the teacher part of you. And, and brought it back into your practice of doing the training? Well, one thing you probably know about Texas, <laughs> we are 50 out of 51 in access to mental health care. We mm -hmm. suck at it. Mm -hmm. And so that means we have, I just, I was doing some informal research last week and, you know, I'm doing searches for practitioners in rural counties. And it's like, I was prepared for like, no, I just want, let's limit my search to 50 per page. Right. I'm thinking, oh, you know, and I was coming up with none, none, zero, zero providers. Well, clinicians won't go places where there are no supervisors. Right. So virtual solved that Texas took away limits to telemedicine and, and supervising via uh, telehealth. Wonderful. Awesome. But we still have a lot of supervisors that are scared to supervise, mm. right? And so that's a long story. But if we can create more supervisors, if we can create access for these associates coming out of grad school, it's going to grow. I mean, we're going to have more providers in rural areas. And I'm talking with people all the time about, okay, how can we make this? We, how can we entice providers into rural Texas, right? And how can we make that a thing? So it's, it's 
interesting because Cindy Doyle, who you and I both know, I was telling her, I was like, you know, I'm getting all these people asking me about business, but I'm not really a business coach. And she goes, well, start a Facebook group or something. So I started Texas Counselors Creating Badass Businesses. And it was like, boom, all of these people are there wanting to know how to keep their business in business, right? Which is, that's the battle. In Texas, we don't want you to quit because you ran out of money or you didn't know the rules or you didn't know how to do business. So Texas Counselors Creating Badass Businesses was a place where I could just throw free stuff in. Mm -hmm. I could, I could, I've got a thread of people who will do like free coffee, you know, just free mentoring, just you know, we have files full of things that people can use new paperwork to start a practice to help Texans continue to practice so that we can fill these gaps. So I think it's, it's my educator, knowing the research, knowing that we've, we're, we have these gaps. Um, and my little tiny part is going to be this supervisor training and just try to create the best training we possibly could can with kind of like what you're doing, lots and lots of follow-up. If you're a supervisor, we're not going to leave you hanging. We want to give you more stuff. Um, just trying to stay with you on that journey past supervision. Well, let's talk about adding supervision into your practice, because I mm -hmm. think that there's a couple ways to do it. You know, in California, for example, if you are in private practice um, and you are uh, and you are a supervisor to someone who's pre-licensed, they need to be, you know, they can't own their own practice in, in our state and in other states you can. So those clinicians who are not fully licensed are paying for the supervision out of the pocket of owning their own business versus like in California, you have to, you can't own your own business yet. Um, so one of the things is that Either way, I believe supervision is another stream of income in private practice, and you can do it without oppressing or causing harm to those being supervised. And so I think there is one of the reasons people are fearful is because of some of the math, you know, of when you are a student and when you are learning and when you are pre-licensed, um, there is a, there's a lot of out cost outlay, your education, yeah. all of this. And, um, I don't think I fully understood. I started my uh, degree actually in Texas before I transferred to California. And I don't think I fully understood what I was stepping into. I didn't, you know, what, what the cost was going to be mm -hmm. to, to completion. Um, and I think there's ways to make supervision affordable, um, and for pre-licensed, but also profitable for the supervisor. Do you see that in what you do in your training? We advocate for, uh, yes, very non-abusive ways of doing business, right? Because I, and this is my soapbox, I don't view having tons of supervisees as a good business practice in Texas because it's more than just sharing the liability. We own the liability. Mm -hmm. right? For our LPC associates, their clients are our clients. Same. If I, you know, so mm -hmm. if LMFT, we share liability, but it's still your liability grows exponentially. Mm -hmm. So if you're not able to meet with these folks, or you're only able to meet with them an hour a day, and oh, you snooze, you lose, you're not able to meet with me too bad. 
there that's not a good system and then you know for the associates it's a car payment you know mm -hmm. so okay now i finished school i'm paying you a car payment 300 400 500 dollars a month mm -hmm. um so what i advocate for i call it an ann's place model because this is what we did at ann's place i asked my supervisees to go get a job i wanted them to be someplace where they could you know experience other diagnoses uh, see other things, get other experiences, but they had to donate 12 direct hours to me every month. And those 12 direct hours were to the community where our, our little clinic was. Mm -hmm. And we offered our services on a sliding scale based on the federal poverty standards. So, you know, the rate was anywhere from 20, 40, 60 to $80, mm -hmm. um, depending on, you know, various criteria. So they would come, they would give me their three hours a week. And that's all I wanted from them was three hours a week. They were good. They didn't have to pay for supervision. I made, you know, if it was a $60, you know, three hours, right? I make 180 bucks a week. So I'm making almost double what I would have charged them for supervision. So it's a great business model for me. They're not in an abusive situation, right? Because they're working someplace else, getting benefits someplace mm -hmm. else. My community is benefiting because we're able to offer this affordable service to them. Mm -hmm. And I, I limited, there was a time, I think I was up to five supervisees and that mm -hmm. was like too many for me. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine how many hours, how many direct hours we were able to give the community. Um, and, and the feedback I got, go ahead. How are you providing that supervision in a group format or individually? So. 50% of supervision has to be in an individual setting. And mm -hmm. so what we would do is we check the ratio each month. Mm -hmm. And if they were able to have a group session, then we'd have a group session. You know, I'd put the you know, word out, okay, group's going to be on Friday on the second and fourth week this month. So I'd have a few people show up, everyone else. And I used a Google calendar for this. Actually, I didn't. I used Google Sheets. I made like an Excel spreadsheet but they would sign up for their times mm -hmm. two weeks before the month started, right? Mm -hmm. So November, they had to be signed up by the 15th. Mm -hmm. And it was nice because they were able to find the individual or the group slot that they wanted. I was able to have good boundaries and have everybody where I needed them. And uh, it was good communication. Um, and the feedback I got from my supervisees it, it was kind of a relief. They felt very empowered because they were able to make their schedule. They didn't feel um, pressured to have to go do my marketing or have to do blog posts or have to do all this extra crap, right? Because it was literally, no, you just give me three hours a week. That's it. 12 hours a month. I'm not going to nitpick if you get sick or you need, you know, somebody wants an extra session, right? It was just kind of like, no, over time, if you're giving me 12 hours, we're good. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to be clear for those listening that this model doesn't work in every state Correct. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be allowed, like, for example, in the state of California um, at all. So you need to make sure that you understand what your state allows. And also to can we talk a little bit about sliding scale? Because, you know, I am passionate about like understanding the money yeah. in business because that's always was a struggle for me when, I don't know if you noticed what Kate was saying, if you've been listening, 
but she's very clear into her steps of sliding scale and what they're based on. If you're going to offer a sliding scale, you need to have a process that removes the bias and creates equity so that whoever comes in, it's based on solid criteria as to what their slide is, not an intuitive gut feeling, <laughs> not a, oh, they had a compelling story and this person didn't because that's bias. If someone comes in and, and they're more articulate with their story or a great storyteller, like they share more to, you know, touch your emotional heartstrings and you decide, oh, I'm going to offer a sliding scale to them, but somebody else who might have been traumatized and is closed up and is not able to express that, who very well may qualify for a sliding scale doesn't get it. So that's why you have scales like that. And I really appreciate you speaking to like, this is what a sliding scale really looks like. And this yeah. is what you have to do in order to make that work in a practice. Yeah. I mean, if you Google federal poverty standards for, you know, 2021, it will give you how uh, a great scale, right? A family of one, a family of two, a family of three, a family of four, and a, a range for what the, the government, the federal government, how they categorize families, you know, poverty, what, what that level is. Now you get to translate that for your practice, right? What that means as far as dollar amount, but that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And as long as, I mean, we required proof. Um, yeah. We had folks that were unemployed. We wanted, you know, just give us a couple of months, print out your bank statement. Uh, you know, just something, you know, that, mm -hmm. that we could document with. Yeah. And not everyone wants to do that. And if you're not willing to do that, then you have to examine how are you going to give back in a different way mm -hmm. that you feel comfortable with? Because that is truly what sliding scale requires is really having some sort of factual, like tangible number in which to base the slide on, not our emotions. <laughs> right. Or I hear this, you know, one of my associates would come in, so-and-so's on a sliding scale, but they just bought a car. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, check yourself, right? We would, yeah. we would process that. But it was a great learning opportunity because yeah. how people prioritize counseling and therapy, I mean, right. you, te you teach that, right? Mm -hmm. How do you help people go from insurance to cash basis? How do you help them yeah. learn to value themselves? All, all the things. Well, I think that if you're ever going to be resentful, then you shouldn't offer a sliding scale. Exactly. Like, I, yeah. You know, for example, <laughs> exactly. I don't know how they got that car. I don't know the situation. Exactly. I don't know mm -hmm. if someone goes on a vacation if I feel resentment, that is a cue to me that I'm not living in alignment with what I want in my business. Right. And so that is not on my client, you know, for them to, to caretake for that. So when well, personal note, I don't do sliding skill in my practice. I give mm -hmm. away supervision now. That's, yeah. that's how I give back. I love that. So in terms of training supervisors, is your course mainly for Texans or does it apply across the board for other states? I, great question, because <laughs> that is my goal, right, is to get this to where it's applicable to any state. And we're in the process of doing some research right now with uh, the states closest to us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's my dog. <laughs> uh, and so if we're able to do that, that would be wonderful, right? Because yeah. like you mentioned, not every state requires a 40-hour training, um, but the material is 
pretty translatable, generalizable, right? It's relationship, it's handling conflict, it's yes. the developmental model, it's supervising through a theory, those types of things. Yeah. I think what I love about your story, Kate, is that it's a reminder that nothing is wasted. Because I do hear that sometimes where people are like, I went to school for this and I don't even use that degree anymore. But the skills and the talents stick with you and you repurpose them and revision them. And in your practice, you've done just that. You've taken your love of teaching, your gifts of that, and turned it into creating more teachers. Because I believe a supervisor is a teacher. They Mm -hmm. are educating. They are you know, in their live working with someone and teaching them. And I think it's just a beautiful reminder of that for anyone listening, that your story compounds and continues to enrich your future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, yeah, nothing's wasted. Nothing's wasted. Yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, how, what website do you recommend they check out? KateWalkerTraining.com. And just like it sounds, Kate Walker Training, I have a YouTube channel, Kate Walker Training on YouTube. I've got an Instagram, but mostly you're going to see pictures of my dog and my kids. (laughs) Uh, I have a newsletter. Uh, We have, it's Friday Freebies, uh, Adventures Achieving Balance and Supervision in Private Practice. Because a lot of folks aren't on social media, so we encourage you to get our newsletter. There are a lot, if you're a Texan and you're listening to me, there are so many changes coming up Mm -hmm. with LPC law in the next four months. If you're a supervisor or anyone, you need to know about it. So um, Facebook, I have Texas Counselors Creating Badass Businesses, and we have the uh, Texas Supervisor Training Facebook page, which is a group where we we vet you to make sure that you are a designated supervisor. Um, I think that's it. Website, consultation group. Yep. Yep. That's it. Awesome. We'll have all the links um, in the show notes. Thank you, Kate, for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. And you got to, you got to look me up when you come to Lampasses. Okay. Will do. (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys next time.